it's not about pleasing everybody else. It's about learning to give yourself the love and the care that you deserve because if we don't look after our own needs um, and, you know, we use the analogy of, of filling your own cup first, if we don't fill our own cup first and we're in a profession like teaching and we're constantly giving the, the love that we have, and, and it is, we're giving it in so many forms. And if you look at the love languages where we're doing acts of service for people, we are um, providing, you know, community service, we're listening, we're supporting, we're giving, you know, touch and feel. If we're giving that all the time and we're not allowing ourselves to receive it, that's the number one thing that leads to burnout. You're listening to the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log. Stories from inspiring educators, leaders, and influencers who are challenging the status quo. Today's episode is sponsored by My Study Series, an online learning platform supporting Kiwi teachers and students through NCEA. With the ability to track student progress and quiz results, data provided by My Study Series ensures teachers remain informed of how well their students are performing. Check it out now at mystudyseries.co.nz. Kia ora everyone and welcome to episode 53 of the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log, where you are able to grow, learn and develop by accessing high quality PLD when you need it most. I'm your host, Carl Kondalif, and today I'm joined for the very first time by my co-host, Celia Flick. Celia, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Carl, and you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How has your, how's your Monday been? It's been good. It's been a little cold in the capital today. I kind of overestimated the the, the weather conditions and, and didn't dress appropriately so felt felt the cold but um on the positive side i was reminded that it was 37 days until christmas so that's pretty exciting well i, I wasn't here today i was in auckland what, what sort of temperatures did we have um i think it was maybe like 13 and it was just a bit wet and cold and very blustery that's wrong when there's only 37 days to christmas thing. that's absolutely yeah. wrong yeah Hey, so today's guest is Sean Kay from Smile Teachers. We talked about a number of things during this episode, but one thing that really stuck out for me was this need to self-love. And I was thinking, Celia, when you were teaching, how did you go about focusing on yourself first, you know, filling your own cup to ensure that you're in the best possible position from a perspective of well-being to support your students? Yeah, I think it's a lesson that it- actually took me far too long to learn really in terms of that looking after self first Um, and especially as I became a head of department not only looking after the learners in my classroom but looking after my team and so it was when I was doing some leadership PD and came across a document called Tūrangatera which is a Māori medium leadership document fantastic and it talks about seven key roles of being a leader and one of those is that of the kaitiaki or guardian and in that it spoke about the need for that caring for self before you could care for others um, so that was a really good discussion that I ended up having with the department and and then perhaps reminding me that uh, 
I was very much in support of them looking after themselves and, and didn't always necessarily uh, walk the talk. So I started making some real conscious um, decisions and, and being quite deliberate about scheduling time for myself. And, um, and mostly that was around um, scheduling time to exercise and, and just having that time to to physically nourish myself, but also that, that, that kind of mental and emotional um, um, nurturing that you get as well when you're sort of out doing physical activity. So, yeah. The statement you said was really powerful and it, it resonates a lot. Do you think when we, when we consider education and, and the teachers and the, the people we have in front of our students, do you think we kind of frame it in terms, or do you think teachers are successfully looking after themselves before they actually go forth and support our students? Do you think we're doing that well enough? Uh, look, I just, the teachers that I see at the moment are just trying so hard to look after everybody. And I think sometimes looking after themselves is, is they're the last thing that they do and, and we've kind of got that a wee bit backwards really. And so, um, you know, we, we're talking a lot about well-being and well-being of our students, but actually we need to be putting in a lot of work in terms of well-being of teachers, well-being of staff, well-being of entire school communities. So yeah, it's a real, it's a real challenge I think at the moment. I, I agree. And I'm very similar to yourself. I frame my, um, my self-love, if you will, around that physical activity. And when I have sound physical activity every single day, everything else seems to fall into place. But you're right. When we talk about the focus on well-being, it, it seems to be so much around the student and making sure that they are safe and they are supported. But we just can't forget about the teacher because if the teacher's not of sound mind and whole order, then um, you know, we're going to let our students down. And Sean talks about a lot of other things during the episode that um, alluded to um, being in, in a position to improve yourself and, and perform better. What were some of your key takeaways from the episode? Uh, I think uh, my big takeaway was when he spoke about that morning routine. Um, for him, he called it his hour of power. Um, but I've also heard Dale Sidebottom talk about that morning routine and for him I think it's just even you know 20 or 30 minutes that he's spoken about so whatever works for you as an individual but just scheduling that time to sort of set yourself up for the day um, is really powerful rather than just kind of it being you know an alarm and then rush 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 and and then you kind of constantly feel like you're rushing for the rest of the day um so yeah, it's definitely a strategy that I've put in place probably fairly recently in terms of um, scheduling some extra time in the mornings um, and, and find it hugely rewarding. Yeah, I, and I'm similar. And for me, it's, it's the small ones. You know, you, I, I get up and then I do a little bit of exercise and then I do a bit of meditation. I do some journaling and those are just small ones that stack and stack and stack. And then it really sets me up for success through the rest of the day. And that's why I like routines and, and they're a big part of what I do. Um, and that was probably one of my key takeaways as well. But Sean talks a lot throughout this episode around things to help teachers um, position themselves uh, better in this whole um, environment of education. And he's got some real gems throughout this episode. So 
we'll jump straight into the conversation and here's Sean Kay from Smile Teachers. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Carl. It's my pleasure to be online with you today. Excellent. Hey, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your teaching background and experience and a few tidbits about your current role in education? Absolutely. So I started off in senior secondary, actually, where I was working in a specialist sports development program for about six years. Uh, I was working with a lot of disengaged students who wouldn't normally fit into the usual school system. And to be honest, it was a little bit of a a last chance you type scenario where they applied to come into our program and it was basically uh, all based on interview. So their reports weren't fantastic. They were generally disengaged at school and they were struggling academically, emotionally, socially. But the one thing that I guess kept them in alignment and kept them coming to school was sport. So we basically created a program or our initial founders created a program to allow these students to integrate back into school. And the way it worked was they had one teacher, which was myself. So I had the same group of 25 students every day for the whole 12 months. And there was a really big focus on self-development where we were encouraged as teachers to sort of integrate our own I guess, programs and ideas to help these students navigate the challenges that they were going through. Uh, So that was my first six years of teaching. And halfway through that, I took a year off and went to London where I taught in a special needs school for six months uh, and then returned to Australia. And it was about a year after that that I really started to struggle with burnout and mental illness. And I'm, I'm sure we'll go into that a little bit more but uh, from that and from learning with the student well-being side of things and then also my own well-being I really became obsessed with uh, the power of the mind and human potential and that's yeah it was probably about 2017 that I began my journey down the rabbit hole as I like to call it where I just became you know so obsessed with modalities to help with emotional well-being with social anxiety and issues around depression uh, and mental illness. And and initially the focus really was on mental illness where now with the work that I'm doing, I'm more focused on mental wellness and actually looking at how we can have a more positive impact uh, on education. So to summarise all of that, I've now basically ended up on Hayman Island, which for all of those listening is off the coast of Queensland in the Wit Sundays. Uh, I'm currently teaching part-time a small class of pre-primaries, year ones, threes and fives, which is very different to what I'm used to. You have, um, you've covered a really wide variety of student and and learning levels and that's fascinating and what I liked about your story there was you you shared about working with some of those disengaged students and for my audience a lot of them a big a significant group of of my audience are physical education teachers and when I think back to my career uh sorry my schooling I was there for sport and that was it and 
there was nothing for that type of student. There was those assumptions that, okay, well, you're not good at schoolwork. You're just here for sport. Right. We can just, we can work with that and we can make it happen. But there was nothing ever really in my time of a teacher or um, a school coming out and going, Hey, you're, you're good at sport. Well, let's try to find a way to take that passion that you have for sport and bring it into the classroom and use some of that to help with your learning. So, um, was that kind of how that worked for you in that role? Yeah, so I'd be happy to share. I actually, I didn't, we didn't part on the best of terms with that uh, program purely because uh, I was more invested in to my journey with Smile Teachers and my, my boss wasn't exactly supportive of my own passions. But without, with all that being said, the program was still really influential for students. And basically what they did and for all of those listening was they partnered with, uh, in Australia, we call them registered training organisations, so RTOs, yep. who basically are like a TAFE. And part of the program was completing a Certificate 2 and Certificate 3 in sport coaching and sport and recreation. And then the other part of the program was completing your core subjects like English, uh, physical education studies, uh, careers and enterprise, and the other one was workplace learning. So they would go out one day a week on work experience and then another day of the week, they would actually be out at a primary school running a sports clinic that was all facilitated by the students and overseen by the teacher. So I would oversee the whole process, but the students would effectively run a clinic uh, on behalf of Cricket Australia and they'd do all their training through Cricket Australia. They would be accredited as a level one coach and then during the year, they would go out as part of their TAFE unit and deliver programs. So it was a really innovative program. And I think they've gone from, you know, having the original class in Melbourne in, to, oh, I think it was 2010, to now having nearly five to 10 programs in every state in Australia. Um, so if anybody, if anybody listening is interested, the program's called CEDAR, which is S-E-D-A. Um, Cedar Group on, and if you can find them on Google, it's a really interesting concept, and and yeah, I think it's it's perfect for those senior school students like we talked about. Um, at like everything, they're they're still perfecting the program, and and one of the areas that it really lacked was uh, well-being support. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, that was my sort of. Uh, opportunity to to go and chase new things and here i am doing the work that i'm i guess so passionate about yeah and that's really interesting you you mentioned the well-being has kind of been that missing link in that program and i was fortunate enough last year i think it was to tour some schools in melbourne who were really high performing um, sporting academy type skills uh, schools and we only really saw one of them that was actually taking this whole concept of well-being um, seriously, and they were tracking um, some key data with their students. And of any of those, um, that data dipped below a certain point, then it set off a whole lot of um, different things for their, you know, their home class teacher would be contacted, their dean would would hear about it, and they would be in touch with them just to make sure that they were supported and they had the resources that they needed. So definitely something that um, I think in New Zealand with really high performing sports schools, they're forgetting about 
that really important aspect of well-being and how we can support our learners. And I guess that's what we're going to talk um, quite a bit more about throughout this episode, which is really exciting. Now, you you touched on a little bit of personal mental health issues. You didn't explain too much. And, you know, I, I'm talking to you now and, I, and I've had a little bit of read about the stuff you do. So you're obviously in a, in a, in a really good place right now doing some amazing things. How has that experience of mental health helped define and shape your life to where you find yourself now? Because I imagine going from a really dark place to where you find yourself now, that's quite a big journey in my eyes. Absolutely, Carl. And I'm far from perfect and I still have many days, uh, even like yesterday, where fear, worry, anxiety, a bit of self-doubt still pop up and can sometimes knock me around when I'm not consciously aware. And that's the term that I really work on with teachers and students is becoming consciously aware of when that stuff is happening. Now, the old me would have gone harder and faster and pushed myself more when I started feeling fear, stress, you know, self-doubt, I would, I would force myself and will myself to, to do more, to achieve more, whether it was training, whether it was learning, whether it was watching videos, listening to podcasts. I was so obsessed with I shouldn't be anxious, I shouldn't be stressed, I shouldn't be tired. There's a better way. I've got to find a better way. And it was really a, a mentor of mine that just said the most simple thing um, about oh, 18 months ago when I was, I was struggling with this again, like I'd sort of, uh, I'd come out of, you know, the big rut. I've never been back in that dark place, but I just found a lot of resistance at this point in time. And he said, you need to stop doing and start being. And I sort of thought about it and it didn't really sink in. And he said, you have become so addicted to this feeling of stress and anxiety that you don't actually know how to be happy. And that literally shook me to my core and I was like, wow, like he, he's so right, but I don't actually remember the last time I actually experienced joy and happiness. And even though I was doing okay, I was in the classroom again, I was, you know, my students were so inspired and they, you know, I always got great feedback from my students and parents and I was you know, doing a great job in the classroom, but I wasn't actually allowing myself to receive the, you know, recognition and receive the praise. It's like I'd been, I'd grown up and it's probably very much the same in in New Zealand where you grow up as a young male and, you know, it's not, it's not nice to be recognized or, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're weak if you're seen as winning something and being awarded something or, if somebody compliments you or says, you know, you did a really good job or that was really nice of you to do that, it's it's like we push it down and, and when I talk about um, you imagine trying to hold a tennis ball underwater, that tennis ball just wants to come back to the surface and with this toxic masculinity that caused me to fall into this dark place, it was like all that emotion, all that frustration that I'd experienced as a young male that then transferred into being a young teacher and just trying to be Mr. Perfect was just like holding this tennis ball underwater. And when I had that big breakdown and ended up in the dark place, it was like that tennis ball just burst to the surface 
and everything came up and I was just shattered. I was a wreck. I was back at home with my mum and dad because they were the only people that I wanted to get support from. But from that moment and, you know, learning about all of this stuff I'm talking about, I found myself having that conversation with Andrew, my mentor, and him, you know, saying You've, your default setting is stress and anxiety. And from there, I honestly believe that learning to love myself, which is such a counterintuitive thing for so many males, learning to love Sean Kay exactly how he was, was the turning point of my life. And it's not a self-love is not a destination. It's not, you know, you do it for six months and then all of a sudden it becomes a thing. It's a daily practice where I've now got my daily rituals and my routine that I use each day to give me the best hope of being my true authentic self. And when I do show up as my true authentic self, that is where I have the biggest contribution and that is where I connect with people. And if it's a day like yesterday where I wake up and I know that I'm not feeling 100% and I had a whole list of stuff to do, I didn't touch the list because I knew that I had to go and go to the beach, go for a walk, have a little snooze and just allow myself to feel the way that I felt. And then today I wake up and I'm back back on track. You, you touched on so many things there that I could pull out and, and talk about. And I will for a couple of things. The first thing is you touched on over in New Zealand, and I think it's it's fairly common in Australia, is this whole idea of tall poppy syndrome and how we, we chop down people who are successful, and we see that in the media, and we see that in our, um, you know, in our workplaces, and it leads to this feeling of not wanting to be successful and viewing success as something that we maybe we don't want to experience, and and I find that really scary that you know people are not taking um, action or are not taking advantage of these opportunities that present them because. Certain people in society, you know, like to um, call you out on that, and that and that's really sad. And you also talked about um, this whole idea of, you know, your mentor. How good are mentors, by the way? I think everybody should have some sort of mentor yeah. that can just be. There's no bullshit there. They just tell you how it is, and it's a really good way to reflect. But your mentor saying, "Stop doing and start being," or being consciously aware, and that's, I think that's a, a really hard place to get to like when I and I'm just trying to picture it using myself as, as an example I tend not to I tend not to stress you know I, I'm I, I don't know why it is but I, I, I just tend not to stress and not to worry about things but that doesn't stop things like um, that still doesn't make me present if, if you know what I'm you know what I'm saying like I'm not stressed and all that but I find it hard to be present and in the moment, like it says here, you know, your mentor said, stop doing and start being. And like, I don't stress, I, I don't feel like I have some of this, but I can't just be present all the time like I want to be. Like I have family, I have my students, and often I just find myself um, just sitting there and forgetting what's happened for the last five minutes. Like, you know, so you you really pose some, some challenging thoughts there around this whole concept of mental health or, or mindfulness and, and being present. One of the things that you've just mentioned, which stands out for me because it's something that I only read 
just yesterday is the notion that anxiety is always going to be present for all of us. There's always going to be an element of anxiety in our life. And what uh, the difference is, is when that anxiety becomes an obsession. So, for example, if we're anxious about not having enough money, but then we become obsessed with work and working and forcing ourselves to, you know, work long hours, do more work, bring in more clients, you know, whatever that is, then it becomes an obsession. And that obsession is what ends up, you know, pushing people away from us. We don't have meaningful relationships. We don't know how to switch off. Um, And I think that's where this uh, conscious awareness comes in. It's to, and, you know, everybody's different. There's a whole range of strategies you can use to do this, but, you're just talking about how, you know, you don't usually get affected negatively by stress. Stress is another example. Stress is what keeps us alive. But if you've got the conscious awareness to go, oh, Carl, you're a little bit uptight at the moment, but that's okay because, you know, you've got a big presentation tomorrow and you're feeling a little bit stressed or anxious because of that presentation and you'll be fine. But if it's like, I've got this presentation and I start obsessing over it and I start, you know, working, 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 staying up all night, not looking after myself. Then all of a sudden that's where it manifests into something that's going to affect us. So it's really, it is a balance and it it is about being consciously aware of how that feeling is showing up for you. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And that whole, yeah, that whole idea of obsession, and I guess that obsession can can also mask some of that other stuff too, can't it? Like if you are obsessed about something and you're taking a lot of action on that, you know, you, you look at that and you go, well, I'm just doing good things. I'm taking action. I'm bringing in more clients. And you, you don't see a bigger picture of how that can impact you in negative ways. Yeah, definitely. You, you talked about self-love and, you know, being able to love yourself for who you are. <laughs> Can you go into that in a little bit more depth? Because I'm kind of struggling to see how, you know, how do you go about loving yourself or who you are when you have things like doubt and you have fear and you have stress coming into your life and that can impact the way, that perception you have of yourself? Absolutely. Um, So there are three fundamental fears that we all experience in some way or another and they're going to show up in our life in so many different ways. There's the fear of not belonging. So from a young age or for eternity, we've all wanted to belong to a tribe. We've all wanted to be a part of a community. We've wanted to be in a relationship. We've wanted to matter. And as soon as we don't have that belonging, we start to neglect or or we don't love who we are. The second thing is fear of not being loved. We fear that people aren't going to like us or people won't love us or we may not find that you know, true love or relationship. And again, if we don't find that love or we don't feel that we have that love, we start to create this fear that is going to make us not love ourselves. And then the last one, which I believe is probably the biggest thing, and I watched a lady recently, Marissa Peer, um, speak about I am not enough or the fear of not being enough being the number one thing affecting humanity where people have this 
underlying feeling of they're not enough, whether they're comparing each other to social media, whether they just have been brought up with, you know, social conditioning or parents or coaches or teachers telling them that they're not good enough and they just bring on this subconscious belief that I'm not enough. So the the thing with self-love and the power about self-love is that when you integrate practices into your life, like daily practices, whether it's affirmations, whether it's uh, inspiring podcasts or listening to people, reading, um, it could be meditation. There's lots of different things you can do. Uh, And we learn to focus on ourselves first and what we love about ourselves. And then it's not about pleasing everybody else. It's about learning to give yourself the love and the care that you deserve because if we don't look after our own needs um, and, you know, we use the analogy of, of filling your own cup first, if we don't fill our own cup first and we're in a profession like teaching and we're constantly giving the, the love that we have, and, and it is, we're giving it in so many forms. And if you look at the love languages where we're doing acts of service for people, we are um, providing, you know, community service, we're listening, we're supporting, we're giving, you know, touch and feel. If we're giving that all the time and we're not allowing ourselves to receive it, that's the number one thing that leads to burnout. And there's actually a lot of research and a science and a scientific term out there for it, which is compassion fatigue, which nurses, doctors, teachers, anybody working with people who are constantly giving their love and compassion to others and not taking it back end up with burnout. And that is what leads to a mental illness or, you know, uh, depression or anxiety because they're not prepared or in a position to feel love for themselves. Um, so self-love has become a massive part of, of my life and it's one of the, the core things that I try and teach the people that I work with. Uh, and the, I guess the, the question that it all comes back to is do you think that they're going to be able to empower students to love themselves if they don't first love who they are? Yeah, I mean, that's all powerful stuff. And, and I've never actually heard the term compassion fatigue, but it makes 100% sense to me the way you've explained it then. I guess the, I guess the flip side for me is, um, you know, the health and well-being of our students is suffering, you know. That, that data is clear on that. But I guess we can't really – it's probably when you, when you describe self-love then – we're probably not in a very good position to support them if we're not supporting ourselves first. Is that kind of what you're saying? Hundred percent, hundred percent, Carl. And I, the the Dalai Lama, oh, I can't remember. It was last year. The Dalai Lama was asked a question at one of his events, and the question was, um, "Hope I get this correct, but it was, how how can I be happy when I see so much tragedy and misery in the world?" And the Dalai Lama said. Who can you help if you're unhappy? Mm. And it was based around if you're helping people or you're wanting to make other people happy, but you're you're seeing all this other stuff happening around the world, how can you actually be happy and and make a difference to health and well-being? And that's that's the core message to the work that I'm doing and I believe it's 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 linked with everybody like yourself who are in these circles making a difference trying to contribute to the well-being and health of other people it's 
I honestly believe that teachers are the most influential people on the planet. But they have to, like you said, they have to put their own well-being first. And it's it's as simple as a teacher being healthy and happy and then just rocking up and doing their job because it has a direct impact on the people around them. So uh, the Buddhists believe we've got this 20 to 30 foot uh, energy radius around us that we're projecting. And it's like, if we are nourishing, if we're healthy, if we're happy and we're rocking up and just loving what we do, it's going to impact other people without us even having to tell them. So it's, it's, it's interesting and it's powerful and it's a bit woo woo for some people, but it's like, if you're, exercising, sleeping well, looking after yourself, doing some meditation or some reflection, and you're just showing up every day at work and you're being the best teacher you can possibly be, it's going to have an influence on those students and you may be the one positive influence that that student needs. Okay, so you've worked with a lot of teachers. How 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 common do you think yes. is it that there are teachers and educators out there who are just taking zero action on supporting themselves and uh, focusing on self-loving and well-being and, and personal well-being. How, how common do you think that is? The, it's a tough question. That, it's a tough question. It actually ups. It, no, the thing that came to mind that actually upsets me and it drives me to keep doing this is the number of teachers that I've worked with that don't believe in themselves, that lack the self-worth and believe that I'm not enough is diabolical. Like it'd be, I, I, would, I, wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even know, have a number to put on it, but there is a rising number of teachers who, and I, the whole planet's waking up. I think everybody will realise that everybody's starting to realise okay, the, the ways that, that we've been living aren't serving us anymore and I need to consider how I'm eating. I need to consider how much sleep I'm getting. I need to consider time to meditate or reflect or, or whatever that is. And there is there is a growing like number of teachers. I would say, let's just say, for example, a school that I'm working with, there would be 20% that are already doing it and they're a sponge and they want to learn more and they want to you know, integrate some of the stuff to what they're already doing. There would be 20% that have sort of got their ear to the ground and, they're, and they, they're interested because they know it's important and they're interested because it looks good on their you know, teaching CV or whatever. And then there's still definitely 20% or more that uh, I guess – under the covers a bit and they just think and and to be completely honest I've worked with quite a few older teachers and I feel they've grown up in a different generation and they've also probably developed their own resilience um, through you know the years of teaching and I'm not necessarily saying that their approach to dealing with students is the right way but in terms of dealing with their own emotional well-being they're quite resilient um, but in terms of health and well-being, uh, and I know you know the data's out there that student well-being so so big, uh, and I guess you know whether you want to call New Zealand our, our little brother or what, but 
the I think the single I'm not I think that I know the single biggest factor affecting health and well-being of our students is trauma for one and a lack of basic human needs so sleep nutrition nature and nurture are probably the four biggest things that kids are missing out on and that comes from the busyness of parents uh you know broken homes a lack of support and you know not having the resources at home to continue the hard work that the teachers are doing yeah and that that is that is scary and it is scary hearing about how many teachers just aren't employing some of these strategies that could be supporting themselves and yet you only need to go as far as the assumptions around teachers and yeah the assumption you hear all the time is that well they weren't good enough to cut it themselves so they had to become a teacher and when you when you weigh that into it you know there's i i have no doubt that there are a lot of teachers who who've live that get up and live that every day oh you know i couldn't i couldn't do this i couldn't do that so i ended up teaching and that just manifests as as you're in a position because you weren't good enough and when you're not good enough then you know there's zero self-love there and that's and that's really sad if you were to say i mean what's what's one thing that for people who for teachers or educators who are doing nothing about this what's one thing they could start like tomorrow that could have a positive impact on their well-being or their capability to self-love? This is probably something that every teacher um, comes up against and I could probably say 75% of the teachers that I've worked with are the same. Setting the alarm to be, whether it's 30 minutes or 60 minutes earlier than what they're used to, and now the argument is always, oh, but I need that extra sleep. Well, we need seven to eight hours sleep um, on a good night. So I would suggest going to bed earlier, getting your seven to eight hours sleep, but then giving yourself 30 to 60 minutes in the morning to have your own routine where you're doing something. Uh, so basically I, I use an hour of power. That's what I call it. It comes from Tony Robbins. Um, but what it is is I do 20 minutes of movement so that could be a walk, that could be a bit of yoga, that could just be a stretch, it could be dancing, whatever it is. You might even go to the gym. 20 minutes of movement, 20 minutes of meditation or reflection, and then 20 minutes of journaling or writing some stuff down, reflection, gratitude, setting my day, whatever it is. Just that hour, and I know an hour is quite long for some people who you know might have kids and things, but it could be 30 minutes. That hour sets the tone for the rest of the day. So conversely, if teachers are getting up at the very last minute, having a quick shower, grabbing a cup of coffee, racing out the door, racing through traffic or being stuck in traffic, every one of those little kinks in that chain is raising cortisol, which is increasing stress. And so by the time you get to school, you've already got this big stress bubble hanging over you. And who are the people that are going to be impacted the most by that stress bubble? Students in your class. So my thing is get seven to eight hours sleep because sleep is more important than exercise, nutrition, reward of the rest. Sleep is number one. And then give yourself time to actually get up and get into a rhythm for the day ahead. It's perfect. And, you know, you've mentioned about the society being woken up around this sort of thing. 
and I think about my last sort of maybe six or seven podcasts, Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, has come up three or four times. Um, and just the data that he yep. talks about in that book, you, you just you just can't – it's irrefutable. You you need sleep. You need seven to nine hours. Well, I think you asked me – I think you asked me a question just before about what's the what's the biggest thing affecting teachers. And simple answer is sleep. Oh, a hundred percent. And I've mentioned this in, in a number of episodes. But when the chapter where he starts off, Matthew Walker, and he says, "If you think you can cope without sleep, I'm going to change your mind in this in this chapter." And I was one of those people. And I finished that chapter, and I went home and I wrote out my new plan, my new routines, because there was no way that I could refute that anymore. And routines always have been a big part of my life, but I sacrificed sleep, um, and I felt I could function 100% perfectly without sleep. Um, you know, I'd sleep four to six hours a night, and I'd think there was there was I had no problems there. But since I've incorporated this new sleep routine, on top of all the other good things that I do in the morning, um, it is just completely change the way I operate on a day-to-day basis so you know 100% routines are are so powerful um, but I think we underestimate them too and that it's easy to you know to think and and overvalue the idea of getting another 10-15 minutes of sleep to sacrifice and because of that you sacrifice your routine but that routine it just sets you up but you have you know if you think if you meditate you do some physical activity you read in your journal that's four small wins before you've you've even made it out of your bedroom and when you're stacking stacking those wins you're just gonna um your day is just gonna lay itself out for you and it's such a good place to be and um i wish more people, not just educators, could experience the power of really solid routines that are ingrained and happen every single day. Well, they're in they're in routines their whole day at school. Yeah. They're like it is education's very much a routine, structural, you know, do this, do that. Like why should it go just between nine and three? Exactly. It should be before that. And we are creatures of habit. So the the more we get into that routine, the more of a habit it becomes and all of a sudden you're getting home like like I have been lately getting home from school at 3.30 and then I've got energy to burn until 9, 9.30 at night. Yeah. Can you tell us more about your programs that you run? Because you support not just teachers and students, but you go school-wide, parents and communities as well, don't you? Yes, that's right. So teachers are the prime focus. And the reason that I focus on teachers is, like I said before, I believe they're the most influential so going and working with parents it is just to basically reinforce what we're already doing with the teachers um, and the students. So, for example, if I'm working with a school um, such as, well, let's just say St. Joseph's Catholic School in Perth, I do a, term, a, a day with them every term. Um, and during that time, I'll spend a session with every year group. So that'll integrate a whole lot of different stuff um, within that session. The teachers will watch me do that session. They will get then get a whole bunch of resources and lesson plans to help them keep implementing those activities throughout the term. Um, and then, if the school just if the school wants it, and not all schools do, I'll then do a parent evening with the parents that night to go over the strategies as well. Because um, you know a lot of kids are struggling with you know how to regulate emotions and how to understand what they're feeling, and you can get school parents and community all on board really makes a difference um 
especially like I've done some schools in like the the middle middle of Australia, like red dirt desert, and um, the the community the whole community wants to learn. It's not it's not just the little school that that wants to learn about these strategies. It's like we'll get the whole community involved. So we'll have a little um, workshop that evening or a social gathering. But yeah, it's about adults being the positive role models that influence the the students. So like we just talked about, doesn't have to be a teacher. Anybody in the school or the community can start to, you know, role model the habits, attitudes and behaviours that support good wellbeing. Um, and then it's, you know, it take what do they say? It takes a takes a tribe to yeah. raise a child or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the same. I saw another thing yesterday. It was like it, it takes a pride to serve a king. Um, it is, yeah. It's everybody's responsibility. Mm. And yeah, that is it is so powerful to to get the family and the community involved as well. And I think role role modelling is is so powerful in the sense that you know you can't. I think our young people they lack really positive role models, and not necessarily to engage with, but just to watch and learn. Like a lot of our young people just like to sit on a sideline and observe and I, I think that we tend to look at those students and those people that aren't necessarily um, fully committed or engaged as um, you know we look at them like not like a lost cause but that they I'm, I'm kind of lost for words here the point I'm trying to highlight I can't come up with the words that that I want but those people that are on the sideline because they're not involved directly it's they're not not learning but they're observing and if they have those good role models and if they see their parents and their teachers and their principal and all of these other people within their community doing these good things then they are still going to be learning and they are going to take something away with it i just think of my students who are always engaged and we have this term mind the middle because the middle student is always the one who's kind of not getting the support because they're right up the top and they're not getting all the help because they're struggling to achieve. They just sit there in the middle and don't get a lot of attention. But a lot of those kids are watching and learning and um, it's important to be able to recognise that and role model that behaviour so it is there visible for them. Absolutely. And what you just said about that kid in the middle, there's another thing in terms of, of the stress and the mental health where we talk about fight, flight or camouflage where they either they do act out or they don't want to be involved or there is those kids that just blend in and you don't notice but there could be something significant going on at home or outside of school and if the teacher's not looking after themselves not consciously aware those little things might slip by whereas if you're present and you're focused and and you notice that you know little benny's looking a bit glum and he's not really engaging in conversation there might be something you know bigger that you know, it could be an opportunity for you to pose a question and find mm. out. Mm. Use a term in your parent program, which I saw, and that's dadness. And, you know, I'm a dad. I'm a father to, to two wee kids. So I love the sound of this. Can you give me a little bit more insight to that term, dadness? So dadness is something I've been toying with for oh, 12 months now where I've got the I've got the team, I've got the people that can make it happen, and basically – I'm creating a program where I take away fathers and their teenage boys. So as we've already discussed on the podcast, I feel like there's a real um, disconnect between young boys or men and their dads. And there's been a lot of, you know, not 
not knowing how to show the love, not knowing how to receive the love, not being able to express emotions, uh, you know, not being told that you're weak because you're not trying or you're, you're hurt or something's happened. And um, even reflecting on my own childhood, like I still had everything I could possibly ask for. And the thing that really sparked this was when I got into, you know, that place of darkness and at my worst, I was sitting in my car driving around the city and I was beside myself and I didn't know what to do and I, I was like, I can't, you know, I've just, everything's falling apart. I can't go home and tell my parents, like, it's just like they're not going to want to know. I'm just going to look like a failure. But something inside me just clicked and said, you need to go and be with your dad. And th- that's what I did. I drove. I drove from the city, it was about an hour into the countryside. I rocked up and the first thing I did was I hugged my father and that was the first time I could remember hugging my dad in a very, very long time. And from there, I, I obviously learned so much, talked, we, we shared everything, we, he helped me you know, heal. I even found out stuff about his childhood that I believe was affecting me and my sister due to trauma and things. Um, but yeah, as a young, as a teenage boy, Dad didn't know how to, um, you know, love me. He knew how to be there for me and support me, but he didn't know how to say, even saying I love you, like that That didn't really happen from, you know, 18 to 26. Um, and it's something now that is so powerful. So I believe there are so many other men out there, especially males that are working in like, you know, male-dominant industries where they've just got this attitude like, oh, my son's just you know, he's, he's not interested, different generation, you know, he's into games and doesn't really, you know, say much and whatever, but take them away for a, a retreat, put them in a space, get them sharing, get them telling each other that they love each other, team building, you know, warrior chanting, all that sort of stuff. Wow. That's awesome. It, it's really funny. I have this memory, um, from when I was younger I can't remember the age I was pretty young though and like my son now I I kiss my son I kiss him on the lips he kissed me on the lips but I have this memory from when I was a kid where I went to kiss my dad I must have been maybe six or seven and my dad stopped me and said we don't do that and I remember it because I was so confused about why I wouldn't show some love to my father and it's just it's stuck in my head. I can remember it really vividly, and I don't want to. I don't want my son to feel the same thing like, like that. I think, and nothing against my dad at all. And that's a generational thing, like you like you discussed then, that the masculinity. We don't kiss each other on the lips and blah 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 blah. But the feeling that I felt then was that, well, am I not good enough? My dad doesn't love me, and I don't want my son to feel that. And this whole concept of dadness and what you're doing there, so powerful because there there are those barriers there. No matter what generation you're in, I think there are there is going to be those differences, you know, those 20, 30 year differences, and how it was for that father when he was a child. That's right, absolutely. And you know, I think what you just said there, the memory with your dad, like that's that's something that you've obviously carried in your DNA ever since it happened and it's probably a big big moment in your life and, you know, you're conscious of that where for me there was so many little things like that that I'm now aware of because, you know, like I said, I've been down the rabbit hole and I've done hypnosis and transcendental meditation and gone back through the years and, and 
and focus on some of those things. And even to the point where it gets so woo-woo that I, I went and did a session and I actually, I could, I was, it was like I was seeing everything through the eyes of my father as a young boy. And I know his childhood was traumatic and I basically, I could, I could see it, feel it, hear it, everything, what had happened to him as a kid without actually having this conversation with him. And then so after that happened, I went home and I said, Dad, I want you to tell me everything about your childhood. And he revealed the whole lot and basically all these things that were happening to me as an adult, like uh, insecurity in relationships, um, you know, jealousy, all these things that I was like, I didn't know where they were coming up from, was all based around abandonment. And like my father had been basically abandoned as a young boy and I, me and my sister both experienced all these different things growing up where we were triggered by anything remotely related to what had happened to him. And I think the big thing, and I've, I've, there's so many researchers and scientists out there talking about how trauma is affecting everybody now, and I think what it is is it's, it's not the trauma itself, it's the trauma not being healed, and it's like the trauma just being left unattended and then it just rears its head in so many different forms. Um, and that's where, you know, this work that we're all doing in terms of health and wellness is so important. Mm. Before we get to the last question, is there anything I might have missed that you want to mention or is there anything you want to ask me? I would love to ask you a question that I, I love speaking to anybody about and it's, it's why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? I do what I do. Uh, I, I have... I have this personal, uh, my stand or my why, and um, yep. my why is to <clears throat> take disciplined action to empower learners while prioritizing my family, um, my well-being and excellence. So that's kind of my why. So anything that comes up for me that involves me making a decision, it comes back to that why for me. And I think at the core of that, is my family and for example i've just taken on a new role within our community which is um it's called an across school lead teacher role and it means that i am uh, working a lot outside of my school and, and i've taken on a much greater workload which when i think about it has the potential to take me away from my family which is is my number one thing but when i discuss my why and when I think about my why while I want to empower learners um, excellence is a really big thing my health and well-being is a big thing but that family is there but I'm working in the community that my family is going to grow up in and actually this role involves supporting teachers at my daughter's school so in a way this is going to help make them better and so when I weigh up all of those things um, around a decision that I have to make, if I can tick off some of those things in my stand or my why, um, then I know I can um, gladly commit to something like that because it's going to better some of those things that are in my why. So I do what I do because I love my family and they're the number one thing in my life, but I also have a passion for empowering learners. And from being a teacher to um, my business and my company as well, where we're involved with making learning accessible to thousands of kids um that's why i do what i do and i love it um and i often wonder if i'm going to get out of teaching and then i think how could i get out of teaching when it's the best job in the world and we see you know we're shaping 
the future of our society. And that's just so exciting. We're so lucky with what we do. Beautiful. Very well said. So I want to know what role, because we talked about your routines and stuff like that, but one thing I've been toying with a lot lately is this, um, this the power of gratitude. So what role does gratitude play in your life on a day-to-day basis? Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Gratitude is this... Uh, I feel like gratitude is so important, but I feel like so many people just don't understand it. And it's like, you've got to be prepared like we do to actually embody gratitude. And I see through social media, all these different outlets, people, you know, talking about gratitude challenge and da, da, da. And it is, it's, it's great that people are raising awareness, but honestly, Gratitude is something that needs to be felt and it needs to be felt in like every cell of your being because, and it is, it's hard because a lot of people have grown up in a, in a very safe and a very sheltered life. And, you know, even in Australia and New Zealand where we may be, you know, um, exposed to, challenging you know situations whether it's domestic violence or you know tough upbringings we we still have everything that we need to be safe and to have a you know all the basic needs met so just being i had a lady on the retreat recently that said if she's ever stuck or whatever she just basically connects and goes i'm grateful for this breath and takes a big breath because like having the option option or opportunity to breathe is like something to be grateful for. But I have even gone further and deeper with this where I'm a heart math trained coach, which is basically a scientific process where they've now linked the power of gratitude and forgiveness to your heart rate variability. And so long story short, when you actually feel it in your heart and you connect to the feeling of gratitude and a tr- and like a true authentic feeling of, of something that you're grateful for, it actually brings your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system back into alignment. So it's really, really powerful stuff. It's, it's been over like 26,000 research studies now where you're breathing into your heart sense. So you're focusing on your chest, you're breathing in and breathing out and you're focusing on something that you're really, truly grateful for. When you do this, like with the device I've got, you can watch it live on your phone. You can watch your heart rate go from like potentially stressed or a little bit out of rhythm to this lovely wavy looking feeling of actually experiencing deep gratitude. So for me personally, it's about being grateful for the little things like running water, hot shower, food, um, but then also trying to, I guess, radiate that gratitude to other people. And it's, it is, it, it, it works with the heart math where you do a two minute to five minute activity. And then once you're out and about, you're walking around, you're saying hello to people, you're saying good morning, you're smiling, and it just becomes this beautiful feeling of coherence they call it i love it and i've taken some notes here around some of that stuff you mentioned because gratitude is, does play a, a big part in my life and um 
that's it's one of the biggest components of my routine each morning is to well, what mate, are the you three? Look into heart math because I think oh, I'm going to I'm going to science in science and tech nerd you'll uh you'll love heart math as well I'm I'm gonna check it out that's pretty exciting um I don't know if you're familiar with uh Dr Joe Dispenza or no I'm, oh the name rings a bell so Dr Joe writing that down too one of the godfathers of um mind body connection he's in the documentary heal on netflix um but basically long story short he's fractured his spine in five places and healed the entire thing by meditation or that's his that's his journey anyway wow i'm gonna check that out um and last thing before i let you wrap up is um if anybody that does go and you know have a look at smile teachers and what we do um, we do run retreats, and if anybody is interested in coming on one of those retreats, if they mention uh, Augmented Learning Limited um, or yourself, um, then we'll look after them with a special discount offer. So for Bali in January, it'll be $500 off, and then later in the year, um, we'll potentially do the same sort of deal as well. Awesome, mate. I'll make sure I get that in the show notes. and. Perfect. You know, Sean, I just want to thank you for the work you do because, um, you know, we've we've touched on a number of topics throughout this episode that when you um, think about the potential impact, negative impact some of these things can have on not only ourselves but our learners, that's pretty scary. And you are, um, I guess, making inroads to improving the well-being of teachers and students and, and parents. And that's something that I don't think, we really should be taking lightly and you know i can see the power of everything you talk about and also the passion you have for this stuff and it's it's been a while since i've spoken to somebody around this whole concept of wellness that has been as passionate as you are and you're full of knowledge and i love what you're doing so um, please keep up the good work um, and i hope some of our listeners um, look into the work you're doing with with um was around your retreats and stuff like that because uh, I know I'd love to go on one. I don't think um, my my wife would probably let me yeah. with a young family at the moment, but it's um, I'm going to take a look at it and 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 see what it is you do, and I'll put that into the show notes as well. So big thank you for for no taking worries. the time out tonight to, to sit down with me, and I hope you have a really good week next week. Thank you, I appreciate it, and keep doing the work you're doing, and I hope we stay in touch. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thank you. Beautiful.